Around the year 2000, 20-something Rudy Kanaewan took a seat at a table on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, California. His dinner guest, Mac Moore with Jojo, took a seat across from him and the pair examined their heavy, leather-bound menus. When the hostess appeared, Rudy grinned at her and gestured to Mac Moore. It's my father's birthday today, Rudy said. We're celebrating. Shortly thereafter, the hostess uncorked a bottle of 1996 Opus 1 and poured a small sample into Rudy's glass for a taste. He didn't know he was supposed to swirl and sniff the wine to appreciate its full flavor. Instead, Rudy lifted the glass to his lips and slurped down the $125 Cabernet blend as if it were a splash of two-buck chuck. The flavors caught him off guard. He noted the taste of black raspberries and fresh-cut flowers, as well as the faint smell of tobacco and chocolate. When he shared these observations, he realized his father hadn't been able to detect the intricacies. Rudy realized in that moment that he had a sensitive palate. He had unwittingly unearthed his knack for wine tasting, one he quickly turned into a bona fide purpose. In the years to come, Rudy used his keen sense of taste to rise up the ranks of wine connoisseurs around the world. But Rudy would take his skill much further than most and begin counterfeiting wine. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. This week, we're exploring Rudy Kanaewan's transformation from geeky college student to internationally acclaimed wine dealer. We'll take a look at how Rudy used his remarkable palette to create counterfeit blends that could trick even the most experienced tasters. Next week, we'll examine Rudy's downward spiral, falling from connoisseur to criminal status as his fraudulent vintages met the wrath of the auction houses and buyers who were conned out of millions. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rudy Kanaewan was a wine counterfeiter who sold millions of dollars worth of fake vintages to individuals and auction houses beginning in the early 2000s. Rudy had officially entered the world of fine wine by 2002 when he was just 25 years old. He initially had an earnest enthusiasm that made him seem like a rookie. But it quickly became clear that, when it came to wine, Rudy was a force to be reckoned with. His sensitive palate, exceptional memory, and affable demeanor helped Rudy charm his way into several exclusive tasting groups in a matter of months. There, he further built his reputation by supplying unbelievably rare vintages from his private collection. Eventually, Rudy stopped gifting bottles and started selling them, partnering up with a high-end wine shop in Manhattan in 2006 to sell his fraudulent bottles by the caseload. That year, he made millions. But his trickery caught up to him in 2007 when several collectors noticed their bottles from Rudy's collection were forgeries. Shortly thereafter, the wine community officially turned against the scammer too, and so began his demise. Rudy Kanaewan was born in the tropical city of Jakarta, Indonesia on October 10, 1976, to Chinese parents. His birth name was Zen Wang Huang. At the time, relations between Indonesia's minority Chinese population and majority Muslim population were quite strained. Because of this, Rudy's father is said to have insisted that all of his sons go by Indonesian names. And so, Zen Wang Huang became Rudy Kanaewan, a name his parents stole from a famous Indonesian badminton player. Though little else is known about Rudy's mum and dad, it's revealing that they chose to give their son someone else's moniker for his own good. And while the jump from faking an Indonesian identity to counterfeiting wines is significant, this early experience with deceit may have influenced Rudy's willingness to lie to get ahead. In his childhood, some reports indicate that money was never a problem for Rudy or his family. They enjoyed all the luxuries that came with their lavish life. In fact, the family of seven reportedly lived on a sprawling, private compound that kept their Christian Chinese family separate from the Muslim population of Jakarta. But stories suggest that Rudy didn't spend much time on that property, as he may have been away at boarding school in Singapore. Though the way his parents acquired their alleged wealth remains a mystery, two of his uncles were fairly infamous during the early to mid-90s for financial scandals. In 1994, Rudy's uncle, Eddie Tansel, was involved in the biggest banking scandal in Indonesian history, embezzling roughly $430 million in fake loans from Bank Pambagunan, Indonesia. Tansel was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but escaped in May of 1996 with the help of some corrupt prison officials. Then, in 1997, another one of Rudy's uncles, Hendra Rahaja, fled Indonesia after he got Bank Harapan Sentosa shut down by the government. The institution has misused over $390 million in emergency loans, much of which had gone straight 
into Rahaja's pocket. Prosecutors assert that both brothers used their illegally earned funds to pay for land, homes, and businesses for their family. Unfortunately, most of that stolen money has never been recovered. And while there is no evidence to link Rudy with his uncle's crimes, it's possible that Eddie and Hendra inspired their nephew's later turn toward delinquency. Numerous studies have been conducted about the transmission of criminal behavior within families, proving that it's often passed down through generations. One such study, conducted by psychologist David Farrington and others, and published in the Journal of Adolescence in October 2001, sought to investigate the relationships between three generations of relatives within offending families. This study, entitled The Concentration of Offenders in Families and Family Criminality in the Prediction of Boys' Delinquency, is one of the few to examine how criminal members in a child's extended family affect them. David concluded that arrests of mothers, fathers, siblings, uncles, aunts, grandfathers, and grandmothers are all predictors of a boy's delinquency. While fathers were the largest predictor of future criminal behavior, uncles were also important in terms of independently predicting a child's delinquency. Out of the 1,395 boys studied, 33% had fathers that had been arrested, 12.8% of the boys had uncles who had also been arrested. There's no way to know for sure what kind of personal influence Eddie and Hendra had on their nephew, but statistics clearly demonstrate that their criminal behavior may have predicted Rudy's. At some point in the 90s, while Rudy's uncles were finding various ways to escape prison, Rudy made his way to Pasadena, California, where he moved into an apartment with one of his older brothers. Some reports say that Rudy came to the United States in 1993, while some say he arrived in 1995. Others suggest that Rudy didn't show up in the US until 1998, when he was accepted to California State University Northridge. Regardless of when Rudy got to California, he reportedly received his student visa in 1998, which made him a temporary but legal resident of the United States. He majored in accounting and was overall a great student, though a bit shy with his classmates. Interestingly, in what may have been a misguided attempt to gain popularity, Rudy lied to his fellow undergraduates, telling them that he got into school on a golf scholarship. When contacted later for interviews about Rudy, the longtime golf coach for Cal State Northridge said he'd never heard of him. Nevertheless, Rudy kept on with this lie. But in or around 2001, Rudy's time at university had come to a close, and his student visa is said to have expired. Rudy desperately loathed the idea of returning to Indonesia, as discrimination against the Chinese population hadn't improved since he'd left. Mass unemployment, food shortages, and economic recession had caused violent unrest within Indonesian cities, and the government was quick to use Chinese Indonesians as a scapegoat for their problems. As a result of this turmoil, Rudy's mother applied for asylum with the US government and was approved. She encouraged her son to apply for refuge as well. In his application, Rudy expressed fear for his life should he be forced to return home. He said, I am vulnerable and only death awaits me in Indonesia. On that same impassioned application, Rudy inexplicably listed a fake address as his residence, entering the information for a small Jakarta hardware store instead of his family's actual abode. 
This may have been because he knew he'd get more sympathy from the feds if they thought Rudy came from a poor family. However, Rudy wasn't as lucky as his mother. At around 25 years old, he was denied political asylum. It was also around this time that he traveled up to San Francisco to have a special birthday dinner with his father on Fisherman's Wharf. The two men enjoy the ocean breeze, a delicious meal, and best of all, a bottle of 1996 Opus 1. And right there, overlooking the San Francisco Bay, Rudy discovered he had a gift for tasting the specific flavors in wine. By the time he finished the bottle, he decided to capitalize on his newfound talent. When he returned to Pasadena, Rudy began attending tastings at Red Carpet Wine and Spirits, a respected wine shop in the nearby suburb of Glendale. He'd made it his mission to learn everything there was to know about the inebriant. And he did. Rudy quickly learned that different grapes influenced the varietal of a wine, while the year determined the vintage of it. Helped by his naturally sensitive palate and exceptional memory, Rudy cultivated a mental taste library. Soon, he was able to identify the presence of a certain grape by a wine's fragrance alone. He could even identify which specific wine he was drinking based only upon look and sip, with no bottle in sight. By early 2002, 25-year-old Rudy finally felt ready to play with the pros. In the world of fine wine, this meant attending auctions in order to create a collection that could later be shared, sold, or at the very least, bragged about. So, Rudy hopped in his car and drove a few hours north to Paso Robles, a central Californian city known for its wineries and vineyards. As Rudy got closer to town, the smell of fresh red wine wafted through his open windows. He smiled and turned the wheel to head up the drive to one of his early charity auction events. Using the money he allegedly received from his family in the form of a generous monthly allowance, Rudy planned to bid on a case of rare wine. Coming up, Rudy builds out a personal collection so exquisite, it was almost unbelievable. Before we get back to the show, I have a quick podcast recommendation I think you'll really enjoy. It's an all-new Spotify original from Parcast, and it's called Incredible Feats. Every weekday, comedian Dan Cummins, who you might recognize from the hit podcast Time Suck, explores a true account of physical strength, mental focus, or bizarre behavior. He goes behind the scenes into the achievements of world record holders like Ashrita Furman, who's broken records on every continent, and athletes like Wim Hof, whose training methods allow him to withstand extreme temperatures for hours at a time, and even people like Juliana Kopka, who was forced to survive alone in a rainforest when she was just 17 years old. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. New episodes air Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 
After studying accounting at California State University Northridge, Rudy decided that he loved wine more than balancing books. So, in early 2002, 26-year-old Rudy Kanayawan attended a charity auction in Paso Robles, California to start building a top-notch collection that would impress seasoned connoisseurs. Though the young Asian man stuck out like a sore thumb amongst the crowd of elderly white bidders, he didn't appear nervous or uncomfortable in the slightest. Rudy introduced himself to the other wine lovers, charming them with a self-deprecating sense of humor and full acknowledgement of his newcomer status. When the auction started, Rudy took a seat in the back and watched as the men around him casually bid thousands of dollars on case after case of rare wine. Eventually, the auctioneer excitedly announced the next wine available for bidding, a barrel of 2001 Syrah produced by California winery Sing Kwa Non. Sing Kwa Non has a fanatical following in the wine world, and their Syrah is a particular cult favorite. One barrel of wine can amount to roughly 25 cases or over 200 bottles. Rudy Kanawan was determined to establish a reputation as a high roller by walking out of that auction with more than 200 bottles of that famed Syrah. He held up his paddle as soon as the bidding started and never once put it down. Rudy watched calmly as the price grew higher and the paddles around him lowered. In due course, every paddle but Rudy's was placed back in a lap, and Rudy was deemed the winner of the lot purchasing the barrel for $25,000. After the event in Paso Robles, Rudy felt confident enough to start attending bigger auctions across the country. He drove north to take part in auctions in Napa Valley and Sonoma County. He flew east to bid on wines in New York City. As his perimeter expanded, so did his collection. Rudy had started by purchasing California wines, but he quickly graduated to Bordeaux's and Burgundy's. His disarming nature and impeccable palate got him invited to some of the country's most exclusive tasting groups, and his willingness to open his wallet opened doors to a myriad of private auction rooms. By the end of 2002, Rudy was famous for spending roughly $1 million a month on wine, single-handedly driving up the market price for several vintages. Rudy's new friends were mesmerized by their new companion, despite knowing very little about him. He had money, that much was clear, but the source of his funds remained a mystery to everyone. Some people believed his family owned a beer distributorship back in Indonesia, one friend recalled it was Heineken. Another insisted it was Guinness. But like much of Rudy's past, no one in his circle ever truly nailed down the specifics. Rudy claimed to get a monthly allowance from his rich family, but the exact amount he said he received always seemed to vary. Sometimes it was $1 million per month, other times it was $2 million. In either case, Rudy's friends had good reason to write off his extravagant lifestyle as a result of his parents' generosity. So, they didn't question it when he never invited them back to his home after various tastings and social engagements. His friends simply figured he was an introverted guy who didn't want to flaunt his opulent home, wherever it was. Besides, it didn't matter to them if they got invited back to Rudy's abode. When Rudy came to theirs, he was always exceptionally generous and apparently, he had a sentimental side as well. Whenever he went out for drinks with friends, 
Rudy made sure to ask the restaurant to save their empty wine bottles for him. He told people that he kept the bottles in order to preserve the memory of when he drank from them. Rudy would smile and point at the people around the table, promising that he would write their names on the bottom of the bottle, including the name of the restaurant they'd been at and the date they'd all drank together. But when the night was over, Rudy would head home with a different plan in mind. After leaving expensive beach restaurants in Santa Monica or sprawling mansions in Beverly Hills, Rudy would drive 30 miles east to Arcadia, a suburb in the San Gabriel Valley with a heavy Chinese population. He would park on the street outside the white stucco home he shared with his mother and bring his wine bottles inside. And then, Rudy would apparently set those bottles into a bath of soapy water in his kitchen sink, letting them float until their labels soaked off. Rudy's plan was to reproduce those expensive wines using a combination of cheaper vintages. He would often pour the counterfeit wine into genuine bottles and sell his product as if it were authentic. Rudy's production of fake wine was actually his second foray into the world of fraud. The first time, he illegally falsified his address on his visa application, which is a crime against the US government. Criminologist and sociologist Donald Cressy spent much of his career researching why people commit fraud and in 1951, he came up with a theory. The Fraud Triangle, as it was aptly named, asserts that in order for an individual to be motivated to commit fraud, three elements must be present. Pressure, opportunity, and an attitude of rationalization. The first element, pressure, can be defined as a non-shareable problem or a problem that must be solved secretly. Usually this problem is financial, once the individual feels the pressure of a problem, they will look for any opportunity to solve it. This is element number two. Because the problem must be solved secretly, the opportunities for an honest solution are often limited, if not non-existent. So, the individual will activate element number three, an attitude of rationalization. They will construct a mindset that defines their behavior as appropriate for the situation, even though their actions typically hurt other people. Donald Cressy maintained that the fraud triangle was applicable to every individual he'd interviewed who perpetrated embezzlement. However, applying it to Rudy is complicated, as so much of his financial situation and past were shrouded in secrecy. The first time he committed fraud, Rudy evidently faced the problem of returning to Indonesia and found an opportunity to solve it by feigning a poor life overseas. But the specific pressures that drove him to counterfeit wines are still a mystery. It's possible Rudy misspent all of the money he received from his rich relatives. It's also possible that his family stopped sending him money entirely. Ultimately, it's unclear what drove Rudy to seek out wealth in exploitative ways, but he certainly found his secret opportunity for fraud in the world of wine. Rudy relied on his unparalleled abilities to detect aromas, distinguish aftertastes, and remember mouthfeels to make his deceptions convincing. To the best of his ability, he combined cheap vintages to replicate some of the rarest wines in the world. 
he scribbled formulas on random bottles, and in his own shorthand, he indicated how much of each wine he needed to fold in to create the perfect blend. But taste was only one component of the counterfeit process. Some of these collectors would never even open their bottles, preferring to keep their cellars stocked with vintages to show off, not drink. Because of this, Rudy was also diligent in replicating labels. If he was lucky enough to snag an empty bottle with a pristine label, he would carefully clean and preserve it to refill later. But most of the time, the bottles he received from restaurants featured labels that had been damaged by the evening in some way, a stain here or a tear there. After cleaning and filling those bottles, Rudy would ostensibly look through stacks of copied labels in order to find the appropriate one, then glue it onto the bottle. No one knows where Rudy got all of his labels printed, but whoever helped him out certainly made a significant contribution to his counterfeit operation, as Rudy's labels were usually immaculate. Corks were harder to replicate than labels, but a perfect cork was not necessary to reproduce in order to avoid fraud detection. The recorking of wine is a common process, as corks tend to dry out after a couple of decades. This compromises the airtight seal and causes the wine to spoil. As long as the label and bottle looked authentic and the wine tasted right, a collector could easily ignore the presence of a new cork. By September 2003, Rudy may have finally felt ready to try out his counterfeit wine on a group of tasters. He planned a coming-out party for himself at a swanky Santa Monica restaurant where he officially presented himself as a vendor to the wine world. When he arrived at the party, Rudy carried case after case of rare wine from his car into the restaurant. He inspected his collection, nervously glancing at the likely fake bottles that had been carefully placed among the group of genuine vintages. Moments later, guests flooded through the front doors, ready to see what Rudy's wine had to offer. There was no turning back now. Coming up, Rudy's counterfeit wine is finally put to the test. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. In September of 2003, after spending over a year perfecting his process of counterfeiting rare vintage wines, 26-year-old Rudy Kanaewan was ready to see how they fared in the tasting world. Before he headed to his debut party at Melisse in Santa Monica, he very likely packed some counterfeit bottles discreetly among those in his genuine collection. By placing an occasional fake in a cluster of real wines, 
Rudy may have believed the forgeries would be more convincing, but he was still nervous for the big night. Guests had paid $4,800 per ticket for the opportunity to taste the rare wines in Rudy's exquisite collection, and he wanted them to leave feeling they'd made a good investment. One attendee, Paul Wasserman, the son of well-known Burgundy importer Becky Wasserman, was particularly excited to taste some Chateau Petrus from 1947. Until then, the oldest Petrus he had tried was from 1975. But when Paul tried the 47, he couldn't help but shake his head in confusion. Something about it just didn't taste right to him. It didn't have the same smoothness of the other Bordeaux he had tried before from that same vintage. In his private notes that night, Paul jotted down his serious doubts about the bottle's authenticity, but he did not confront Rudy. After all, he couldn't be sure that the bottle was a fake. And even if it was, Paul didn't think that Rudy was to blame for the counterfeit wine. Collectors and sellers got duped sometimes. Paul might have assumed that's what happened to Rudy. Pointing it out only would have embarrassed his host. Not to mention, Paul would have risked being uninvited to all of Rudy's future tastings. So, he said nothing. Wine tasters often keep suspicions quiet when they suspect something may be wrong about a wine's legitimacy. Because the business of wine tasting can be quite subjective, even the most skilled enophiles will doubt their own palates before they doubt the authenticity of a respected seller's collection. Rudy knew this and capitalized on it. He wandered around Melise and observed his guests as they sipped his sham wine, pleased to find that he had fooled so many of his friends. Unfortunately, the excitement Rudy felt after pulling off a successful scheme was short-lived. Around the time of his party in September of 2003, 26-year-old Rudy received word from the US government that, due to his application being denied in 2001, he must return to Indonesia immediately. Rudy ignored it. He wasn't just a fraudster anymore, he was also a fugitive, and he wasn't ready to let his newfound success slip through his fingers. Rudy may not have been able to fly out of the country due to his rejected visa status, but he could still travel within the US, if he was careful. By 2004, Rudy had become acquainted with a man named John Kappen after meeting him at a wine-focused dinner in Los Angeles a couple of years earlier. Both being ambitious in their goals within the industry, they hit it off right away. And later in 2004, Rudy flew to Manhattan to meet up with John. Rudy had hopes of forming a business partnership with his new friend, so when he arrived in the Big Apple, he felt eager at the bright future that awaited him. John explained to Rudy that he was trying to convert his family's Upper West Side small wine shop, Acker, Merrill & Condit, into a key player at big wine auctions. When Rudy heard this, he came up with a plan that would benefit both of them. Rudy proposed that John start selling vintages from Rudy's own personal collection. Since Rudy purported to own some of the rarest, most expensive wines in the world, John knew that bottles from his collection would be a huge draw. Pleased at the prospective venture, John agreed. He had also invited his new business partner into the 12 Angry Men, a New York-based group of wine collectors. With wealthy, successful backgrounds across the board, the 12 Angry Men relished in their wine meetups. Several times a year, they gathered to dine together, 
and at each meeting, one of the men would serve wine from his personal cellar. According to one of the members, film director Jeffrey Levy, the group chose their name because they hated going to typical Philistine dinner parties where they would bring a nice bottle of wine and then be forced to drink the swill the other guests had provided. It made the men angry, so they decided to have their own dinner parties where they could rest assured they would have wine that was up to their standards. Meeting their criterion would have been hard for the average dinner guest because the 12 angry men often broke out $200,000 worth of wine in a single night. Even though Rudy's friendly demeanor made it seem like he'd never been angry in his life, he fit right in with the group. His generous spirit and extensive collection of rare wines made him a favorite host amongst the men. They called him the rock star of wine tasting. Rudy's rare admission to the exclusive club of 12 Angry Men around 2004 officially solidified his position amongst the country's most elite wine tasters. And by January 2006, he'd accrued a large enough amount of rare vintages, both genuine and counterfeit, that he set out to sell his wines by the caseload. This mission was made easier by the fact that Rudy's business partner John Kappen was also interested in selling full cases. Since collectors and vineyards didn't want to risk their bottles not selling, they'd only send John a couple rare bottles at a time. But to be considered a top-tier auction house, John needed to be selling full cases. So, Rudy capitalized on that need, knowing he too could further his reputation in the wine world as a seller. So, together, Rudy and John planned an affluent affair to kick off the year. It would be an auction of wines from what John claimed was the greatest seller in America. That seller, of course, belonged to Rudy Kanaewan. The event took place at Crew Restaurant, a wine lover's paradise located in Manhattan's Greenwich Village. Crew's interior was high-end but simple, featuring minimal decor. On first glance, the event appeared deceptively low-key. Because of this, the attendees from the upper echelon of New York's wine community felt unsure about what to expect. But when Rudy's bottles began to hit the auction podium, the guests understood that they were in for a very impressive night. Rudy's debut auction of his collection was a slam dunk. By the end of the two-day event, John had sold 1,742 lots of Rudy's wine, and they made 10.6 million dollars. The duo became instant celebrities, and collectors all over the world were desperate to own a bottle from Rudy's personal cellar. Everyone who hadn't been at the event demanded a second one, so Rudy and John planned another auction for October of 2006. With his cut from the first auction and an advance from the second, Rudy was suddenly swimming in cash. So, he went on a spending spree. He started by upping his attendance at wine auctions, reportedly spending at least a million dollars a month in order to restock his cellar in preparation for the October event. With this major windfall gain, it seems Rudy was given the chance to take the high road, investing only in real wines and becoming an honest man. In other words, his need to counterfeit was no longer substantiated by his lack of financial resources. But it appears that Rudy was driven by greed. 
and he couldn't help himself from splurging on life's finest offerings. He bought millions of dollars worth of contemporary art and several expensive cars, including a Bentley and a Ferrari. He also began gut-level renovations on an $8 million house in Bel Air. Rudy's compulsion to spend may be psychologically linked to his inclination to commit fraud. In their book, A General Theory of Crime, criminologists Dr. Michael Gottfriedson and Dr. Travis Hershey discuss the relationship between crime and self-control. Michael and Travis developed what they called the general theory of crime, which asserts that a lack of individual self-control is often a primary factor behind criminal behavior. Felons tend to live with a here-and-now mentality, only responding to stimuli available in their immediate environment. People with high self-control, on the other hand, are more likely to assess the long-term consequences of their behavior. Because of this, they rarely make the short-sighted, opportunistic choice to commit a crime. Rudy, in general, was infamous for his inability to plan ahead. He was often late to events, showing up over an hour after they were scheduled to start. He rarely paid his bills on time. He slept well into the afternoon on most weekdays. But people overlooked Rudy's impulsive nature and lack of organization. Where others would be deemed irritating and disrespectful for such regular transgressions, Rudy was simply seen as eccentric for them. He had become such an important figure in the wine world that anyone who dared to criticize him risked being ostracized from the community altogether. Because of Rudy's growing popularity, his second auction with John was estimated to outperform his first. But no one predicted just how much more successful it would be. At the time, the record for the highest-grossing wine auction was held by Sotheby's when they grossed $14.4 million from an event in 1999. John and Rudy's October 2006 auction smashed this record to pieces. John stood at the front of the room, a gavel in one hand and a glass of wine in the other, and sold 2,310 lots of Rudy's wine. Some of it was genuine some of it was counterfeit, and all of it was extremely pricey. At the end of the auction, John and Rudy totaled up their sales. They had made $24.7 million. Rudy was on top of the world. After spending the summer designing a mansion and cruising in sports cars, Rudy spent the winter purchasing a wine shop in Beverly Grove, Los Angeles, and getting profiled by the LA Times. Rudy's feature in the Times described him as a huge force in the wine market, dramatically driving up the price for various vintages across the world. But the newspaper also decided to include a quote from wine consultant Brian Orcutt, who felt astonished by Rudy's speedy success. As the article explained, Brian worried that it was going to be difficult for Rudy to continue at the pace he'd been going. If Rudy didn't slow down soon, people might start questioning how he was able to amass so many rare vintages so quickly. But as usual, Rudy had no concern for the future. He lived in the present, and as far as Rudy was concerned, nothing could bring him down. Rudy forged on with the reconstruction of his Bel Air house, but it proved to be a bigger job than any of the contractors had anticipated. 
Meanwhile, he spent tens of thousands of dollars per night at some of Los Angeles's swankiest restaurants, sipping wine with his friends as his new chihuahua, Chloe, slept in his jacket pocket. As Rudy's bank balance dwindled, so did his reputation. Collectors privately exchanged notes about how it was seemingly impossible for one man to obtain the sheer volume of rare vintages that Rudy had. While Rudy frolicked around LA, burning up his Centurion Amex card with every purchase he made, wine collectors across America whispered about the amount of fake bottles that had come from the man's cellar. Two of these collectors were Doug Barsley and Don Cornwell. Both lawyers and avid experts on Burgundy wines, the two were distressed to discover that Rudy had offered bottles of 1923 Rumier Bonmar at his auctions. This didn't seem possible, because the domain hadn't even been founded until 1924. Meanwhile, in Palm Beach, Florida, Bill Koch, brother of Charles and David Koch, thoroughly inspected his own wine cellar and he did so with a mindfulness of the way he'd been scorned in the past. Once upon a time, he had purchased four bottles of wine from what he had been told was President Thomas Jefferson's personal collection. But in 2005, Bill and the other buyers of the so-called Jefferson wines learned they had been duped. Bill sued the collector who had sold him the wines, but it wasn't enough for Bill. The fraud made him skeptical of all the other vintages he owned. Now, he'd finally gotten around to investigating them, and he hired a team to help. The examination was meticulous and time-consuming, and it would take years for Bill and his investigators to work their way through his 43,000-bottle cellar. But somewhere in the back, several bottles of Rudy Canaoan wine sat on their shelves, patiently waiting to be exposed for the fakes they were. Across the country, Rudy himself continued on with his counterfeit operation, very likely unaware that his sure demise lay just beyond the horizon. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Rudy Kaneowen's story, where we'll detail Rudy's descent from counterfeit king to convicted criminal. For more information on Rudy Kanawan, amongst the many sources we used, we found Chateau Sucker by Benjamin Wallace of NY Magazine extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artists was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. 
Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.